This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words clarify and not confuse. May they help and not harm. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. It's good to be home. It's good to be working again and speaking in English again. So I'm told that I have a little more of an accent now, which is really hard to believe after just one week of being away. But, you know, maybe it doesn't take long to pull the Mexican out of me. Even though I don't actually talk that much when I'm down there, <laughs> to tell you the truth, I do a lot of listening, um, which, you know, is always a good thing in any circumstance. And, you know, I think you can't ever really stop learning how to listen more deeply and more attentively, more fully. And of course, it also saves you from putting your foot in your mouth, which is so easy to do when you're with family. And I was remembering that years ago, there was a, a radio show with a popular um, therapist, Dr. Joy, Dr. Joy Brown. And she used to say, when you visit your family, cheerful and stupid. Just be cheerful and stupid. <laughs> and that's how you stay out of trouble. So picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, the fifth realization is the awareness that ignorance is the cause of the endless round of birth and death. And the commentary says bodhisattvas always listen to and learn from others so their understanding and skillful means can develop and so they can teach living beings and bring them great joy. Bodhisattvas always listen to and learn from others. And as they do this, they develop their own understanding and their skillful means. And then they teach others and bring them great joy. I think this is my favorite realization. It's always good to bring joy to others and it's not easy to do. Though this realization makes it sound easy, right? Just listen to them, just love them. And a week and a half ago, just before I left, for Mexico, I attended a meeting of the Gen X Buddhist teacher Sangha, of which I'm now a member. And one of the participants was quoting his own teacher, and he said, a Dharma teacher's job is to listen. And I thought, how true. And the closest thing I think that we Buddhist teachers do is what in Christianity is called spiritual direction, spiritual guidance, you know, spiritual counseling. 
But the truth is that at heart, it's really much more listening and reflection than actual direction. I mean, I never tell people what to do. I mean, at least I hope I don't. And if I do, tell me so that I can stop doing it. My job, as I see it, is to meet you, to be with you and to learn, to learn to both listen and also to ask and to learn from you. Because sometimes what's being said is what's being meant, is what is meant. Sometimes what is being said is just a pointer a signal that tells the one listening, there's more. But you have to go farther down the path and you need to cut through some brambles and you need to dig with a shovel, if you have it, with your bare hands, if you don't. And you have to see what's underneath. And sometimes you're given permission to do this exploring and sometimes you're not. And so that's the first thing to determine. Do I have permission? And what kind? So I wanted to just briefly say something here about the teacher-student relationship. On uh, next month, at the end of July, I'm going to sit Tangario with Jess Engelson and Marguerite, uh, who want to become students. And, um, you know, the way that we do it is we've been sitting together for a few hours doing a, essentially a half-day sit. And we'll do face-to-face, -face, you know, during it. And they, in their own words, will ask for the teachings. By the way, I meant to tell you this. <laughs> I didn't get to write the email, but I will. In your own words, you'll ask for the teachings, giving me permission to teach them. Because of course, I'm doing this with all of you now, and the different things that we've been doing, you know, the classes and stuff. But it's different. It's different when you have explicit permission from someone to guide them. And it's different when you make the commitment, which goes both ways, to walk this path together and to help each other, to do everything in our power to help each other to wake up. And so we'll sit together and then we'll chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta and then we'll have tea. And we'll also exchange gifts. You know, traditionally the student gives the teacher something, but I wanted to make it reciprocal. So I'll send them something, they'll send me something. Small, since I live in a New York City apartment. And this just marks the bond. Right, that, that we're forming. Even more than, you know, a certificate would. And maybe soon, I hope soon, we'll be able to do this in person. I just find, need to find a place. And so this realization says that ignorance is the cause of the endless round of birth and death right, is the cause of samsara, of our being born, our dying, and all the suffering that we experience in between. And as with the previous realization, which said that indolence is an obstacle to practice, this is a noose 
to us. Right? Not seeing things clearly, not understanding who we are and what this world is, leads to a lot of pain and confusion. And we know this. And this has always been true. Long before Buddhism appeared on the face of the earth, it will be true even if Buddhism disappears and is never heard of again. If we're walking around a room with a blindfold over our eyes, we're about to bump into the furniture. We're bound to bump into each other. This is ignorance. And turning toward practice is realizing, oh, I'm wearing a, a blindfold and deciding it's time to take it off. Enlightenment is realizing there's a flashlight in our hand and turning it on. But the catch is it's a flashlight. It can't, it won't illuminate the whole room at once. And I want to think that there have been people in the history of humanity, maybe that there are people now who have just found the light switch. They just walk right up to the appropriate wall and they just switch the thing right on and illuminated the whole room like that. You know, I for one just have a little flashlight, tiny little flashlight. And I see bits of the room now and then and others remain dark. And John Wellwood, practitioner, psychotherapist, he was the one who said, uh, who coined the term spiritual bypassing and who said in slightly different words, you need to have a self, a healthy self before you can let it go. He, he spoke about this very nicely. He said, you know, we need a larger perspective that can recognize and include two different tracks of human development, which we might call growing up and waking up, healing and awakening, or becoming a genuine human person and going beyond the person altogether. So we aren't just humans learning to become Buddhas, he said, but also Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. And these two tracks of development can mutually enrich each other. And so do you hear what he's saying? We are Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. And so there's growing up as a human being, which all of us, all of us have to do and keep doing, no matter how realized. And then there's waking up. And the result of fully human Buddha. And lately, in some of my conversations, you know, I've been, I've been hearing strains and I've been feeling strains in myself of what I call the, the good practitioner syndrome. And the, the starting phrase, the red flag, if you will, is, is the mental phrase, if only. If only I was a better practitioner, this wouldn't bother me. 
If only I sat more, I wouldn't get angry the way I do now. I wouldn't be impatient. I wouldn't be jealous. I used to think for longer than I cared to admit, if only I could be like my teacher, then I'd be a real practitioner. I didn't quite say it in those words to myself, but that was, that was the thought. And what a disservice to him and to me and to practice. And, you know, the thought may not be fully formed, so we may not even realize this is what we're thinking. But there's the expectation, subtle or not so subtle, to be better, right? To be wiser, to be kinder, because isn't that what a good practitioner is supposed to be? And of course, we are practicing to be wiser and to be kinder, to be more patient, more open, more loving. But we can't do that by leapfrogging over our own humanity. We can't do that by thinking there's something wrong with us when we're not good enough, disciplined enough, equanimous enough. I think that's the difference between aspiration and expectation. In aspiration, we make a vow without a picture in mind. We vow to wake up not knowing what waking up will look like. I mean, that's the whole point. If we could see it, if we could know it, then we would have done it already. We wouldn't have to practice, really. So we're really vowing to trust what we don't know, to trust what lies beyond what we can see in that particular moment. So it's not like getting a degree and saying, well, when I finish, I'm going to get this or that job and it's going to look like this and I'm gonna have these skills and this kind of knowledge. We're really trusting a process that we're so in the midst of that we can't even really see. And that is why we work together. So that we can reflect one another. And so we trust the process and we just let it unfold because that's the only way that it happens anyway, whether we trust it or not, it only unfolds. So better to trust it. And although we may understand the difference between aspiration and expectation, it's hard to let go. It's hard to let go of that expectation. Which, again, is understandable. I mean, if we're practicing diligently, we hope we'll see some improvement. No, we hope we won't hurt others in our blindness. We won't hurt ourselves. And yet we do. Because the process of becoming an embodied Buddha is terribly messy and sometimes painful. And I wish, I wish I could tell you that the more you practice, the less you hurt. But it's not like that. In some ways, the more you practice, 
the more you hurt. Simply because that shell, that wall that you've been building your whole life at some point just falls apart, or you just get tired of, of keeping it standing. You decide, I don't want to use up more energy doing this. And so it just, it falls apart. At the same time, you do become better at holding the hurt. I've said this before. Otherwise, why would anybody practice? I mean, why would anybody be crazy enough to just walk around like an open wound? Now, maybe you do have to be a little crazy to practice the Dharma, to spend so much time, so much energy, so many resources on finding that light switch. And if you can't, you know, at least to find that flashlight, a flashlight that's big enough, powerful enough to dispel the dark. And to do that, not just once, but over and over and over again. You have to be determined to not get discouraged when, you, when you're bumbling about the room and you're crashing into people and things. Do not think there's something wrong with you for not getting it quickly. Do not spend too much time hoping you'll be better once you get the hang of it, once you get there, wherever there is. But to be fully in your life now, with its ups and downs now, in ignorance, in wisdom now. At first, there was just one tent, Patrol's little black yak hair tent. Over time, people came and set up tents of their own. And gradually, the tent encampment grew from very few tents to very many. At its peak, there were hundreds of black yak hair tents and white cotton tents gathered together in the style of nomads, sheltering thousands of devoted Dharma practitioners who had come to hear Patrol teach. This encampment of practitioners was known as Patrol Gar, Patrol's camp. And Patrol Rinpoche, whom Matthew Ricard called the enlightened vagabond, was a very well-loved and very unusual, very eccentric Tibetan teacher. And um, he lived and taught in the 19th century. And there's many stories about him. And in one of them, he hears that there's a hermit in, um, in the mountains who's been practicing 20 years in a cave, meditating on the perfection of patience. And so he decides he's gonna go check him out. So he goes to the cave, he pokes his head in the door and says, hey, you know, what are you doing here? And the hermit just opens one eye, you know, he's sitting. He says, you know, a bit gruffly, what do you want? And Rinpoche, he comes in and he crouches right in front of him. He just looks at him without saying anything. And so the hermit asks again, who are you? Where do you come from? And Patrol says, I come from behind my back and I'm going in the direction I am facing. Um, 
Okay, says the hermit. So where were you born? On earth. Okay, now he's really trying not to sound frustrated. What do you want? Well, I was just curious to see what you were doing here. Oh, okay. Well, I've been practicing here. I've been here 20 years devoting myself single-heartedly and wholeheartedly to the perfection of patience. And Patrol just starts like howling with laughter. And he pokes the hermit in the ribs and he says, ah, what a great scam. These locals, they must be very gullible. So how much are you making? And the hermit says, how dare you? You just barge in here, you give me all these crazy lines and now you're insulting me, get out, get out of here. Patrol very calmly, he gets up and he looks at him and says very innocently, so where's your perfect patience now? And in a flash, the hermit's anger just freezes, it stops. And he just takes a deep breath and he starts meditating, the story says, in earnest for the first time. A moment, a teaching moment like that, which really most of the time when it happens and when it's most effective is when you don't expect it. So not from the kind of teacher that you expect. I mean, the hermit had no idea who Patro was. He was dressed as a beggar, which is how he usually dressed. And when people praised him, he got angry. He's like, that's just stuff. And it's very dangerous for a teacher to be praised, he said. And so he had to, in fact, he was giving a talk. Somebody sent him a letter of praise. And so he stopped the talk and he just left for a couple of days. He said, I really had to collect myself and make sure that's not going to get to my head in any way. So interesting. But one of his teachings was what he called the three opportunities. And he says, so the first opportunity to practice is right at the very moment that you wake up. So instead of jumping out of bed in a rush, instead of lolling around or just hitting snooze, which he didn't say, uh, we relax our minds and check our intention, right? So, so just as you open your eyes, you relax your mind and check your intention. I think I've, I've mentioned before that uh, Merton, Thomas Merton said, uh, if you, the first thought that you have when you wake up is one of God, you're a monk. I think he meant, you know, you have a, a, a religious bent, that that's where your focus is. So what is your first thought when you wake up? The second opportunity is on your way to receiving the teachings. And in Patrol Gar, students had to uh, squeeze through a very narrow passage to get to the teaching tent, that was Patrol's tent. And he said, during that squeeze, remind yourself to cultivate bodhicitta and to refrain from harm and to do good. And this reminded me of another talk that I read by um, Kandra Rinpoche, who was saying that, you know, in a teaching about compassion, all these, you know, hundreds, thousands of people are um, gathering to, to see the Dalai Lama and to hear him speak about compassion. 
but there were only a certain number of palm fronds, which I guess they use for, for one of the ceremonies. And so people are like shoving each other, pushing each other aside to get a palm frond to listen to the teaching on compassion. And she'd say, what are you practicing? And so think of it, I mean, we don't have to squeeze through anything. So those few minutes before the talk starts, you're getting your tea, you're getting, settled, you're getting settled on your couch or your zafu. You ask yourself, where's my mind? Why am I here? What do I want? Right? What am I looking for? And then the third <clears throat> opportunity happens during the teaching itself. And in, in Patrol's own words, it's another chance to set our intention. And this is how he said it. Each instant, put your heart into it again. Each moment, remind yourself again. Each second, check yourself again. Night and day, make your resolve again. In the morning, commit yourself again. Each meditation session, examine mind minutely. Never be apart from Dharma, not even accidentally. Continually, do not forget. But please don't take this literally if it's going to turn you into a good practitioner again. Quote unquote, a good practitioner. Bodhisattvas always listen to and learn from others. Bodhisattvas always listen to and learn from themselves. They don't chastise themselves or beat themselves up. They do, but that's when we forget that we're bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas know they don't have time to waste on such things. They need all their energy. They need all their focus. They need all their intention, their aspiration. Because it's hard enough to be here fully, to listen deeply, to bring others joy. And it's also quite simple we make an intention. And then we trust that the Buddha in us will know what to do because he or she or they do. They do. And so let me end with another one of Patrul's teachings. Use the time of your life. Develop your inner happiness. Recognize the impermanence of all outer pleasure. Live as a yogi, simply. Do your spiritual practices. Work as a bodhisattva for a happy world. Become an Amitabha, a Buddha of love and light. Turn your world into the paradise Sukhavati. It's the pure land the land of bliss, by unfolding the enlightenment energy within you. Search for a spiritual master who knows the goal of enlightenment. Change your world into a place of grace by understanding all phenomena as opportunities for practice. Let me repeat that one. Change your world into a place of grace 
by understanding all phenomena as opportunities for practice. Dedicate your actions to the benefit of all beings. Send all beings light. Live for the happiness of all beings so you get the energy of light. Bodhisattvas always listen to and learn from others so they can teach living beings and bring them great joy. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.